Welcome to the newest episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here in Portland, Oregon at Jackrabbit Restaurant sitting down with Ben Jacobson of Jacobson Salt. Welcome, Bacon. Bacon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> hey, call ben, me. See, I just combined your last name and your first name together. That's Bacon. <laughs> are, you, are you calling me fatty? No, I'm not. You've been running, dude. You're doing good. That was awesome. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what's going on, Ben? You, you, you've created something that I think a lot of folks don't understand how, one, you created it, and two, the lengths that you went to to create. Mm. Um, you and I met in San Francisco when you showed up in Encanto with a couple packets of salt and tried to explain to me the difference, and, and which you did, but... I mean, that was, what, almost... Seven, eight years ago? It was pretty much the first year Feast started. Yeah. So that would be eight years ago. Yeah. Eight years ago in the summer you came. Mm-hmm. And then I came up here for Feast yeah. that September, and then we connected more while you were here. So, I mean, why don't we start there? I mean, I think what you did was really unique in, you know, figuring out about Neatarts Bay and, and really discovering how to branch into a market that, Everybody, I mean, you're take literally, it for granted. you take it for granted. It's on the periodic table. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, it's salt, but it's, it's more than that. Yeah, it totally is. It, um, I mean, it wasn't, uh, and, and I, I think that we're still kind of, in my mind, we're st- we've got a long way to go in terms of where I want our brand and our products to be, because I think that I fundamentally believe that nutrition is a, you know, human right. And that people should be um, eating well um, as best they can every single meal, every single day. And, and as a result, like, you know, I wasn't exposed to good salt until I was 32 years old. Um, and from that moment on, it changed my life. And so you're saying that iodized salt is not good? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like all that Morton shit and, you know, the diamond and everything that that people use in their kitchens and you know professional kitchens but also like at home like i grew up with you know my mom was a great cook at home and nothing fancy but like uh didn't grow up with using eating great salt and uh so when i finally discovered good salt i was just blown away by how much better it is you want some your granola there no i don't want it. <laughs> i do not need some for my yogurt thank you um but it's but it's, uh, but I'm just, I'm, I'm consistently blown away. Like with, I mean, and I, I've said it a million times, but I think it's phenomenally, uh, I think it's crazy how we're the first company to harvest salt in the Pacific Northwest since Lewis and Clark. And that speaks to you. And to me, like the volumes of how easily such a massive category and product is overlooked and taken for granted for that matter. And so when I started Jacobson, you know, we, you know, there was no other salt producers, great salt producers in the country that were doing great finishing salt. And so we really um, were the first ones in, in the entire country to, to make this happen. And, and I think that that's a, um, I'm, I'm still kind of humbled by that every single day. But frankly, frankly, like, I remember sitting with you, even I think it was before I came into Encanto, um, at um at uh the ferry building um next in the restaurant next to um 
next to uh, Bocalone and sitting down with you and nearly shooting my pants because I was sitting down with you and like you were this big famous chef and you know I was this guy from Oregon and like bringing salt in and but we connected on such a real human level and you gave a shit about what we were doing and uh and I getting goose goosebumps right now thinking about that and but like that's that's real and so those connections that I continue to make every single day like matter to me yeah I think you know when you look at salt I mean you're looking at minerals you're looking at flavor profiles you're looking at texture right but also the fact that you're in the states it's not being shipped from abroad you know there's lower carbon footprint there's there's a lot of big steps involved there but i think you know explain to folks how this first started because i mean there's images of you carrying five gallon pails there's there's the story that a lot of people don't really understand you know it's like this didn't just happen overnight this wasn't a situation where it's like hey you know this is easy because i think perception versus reality everything in life takes a lot of work Right. And you go through a lot to get to where you want to be. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're horrible. Let's be honest. Right. Totally. And, you know, what you've created and what it started as to what it is now are two totally different things. Right. So you were harvesting water from Neetart's Bay, correct? Yeah. By hand, five gallon buckets. You're right. And pouring it through paper coffee filters. Uh, into 55 gallon drums and then eventually into wine totes. It was crazy. <laughs> and then in all of that in a, in a, in a rented U-Haul truck um, <laughs> that I would then drive back to Portland. You know, it's an hour and a half drive over the pass. And so I'd, I bought some ratchet straps at Harbor Freight, like this cheap, you know, industrial supply company and ratchet strapped the, the um, wine totes to the back of the U-Haul, in the back of the U-Haul. And then drove to Portland to a commissary kitchen and started effectively started the salt making process there, which, you know, began on a Friday afternoon. And then if I was lucky, um, you know, finished up on a Tuesday morning, but I would, you know, wouldn't get any, wouldn't get more than, you know, half hour of sleep, uh, per day, uh, during that time period, because I had to, I was the only one doing it and had to, had to be monitored. So now you've, You've you've graduated from that, driving the hour and a half back into the city after putting on waders to go out <laughs> into the water. Which, you know, I I know this sto- I know this story because you would have to go out waist deep to mm-hmm. get clean water, mm-hmm. right? So you're not stirring up sediment and pulling yep. in sand and funk from the bottom, which still you'd have to strain anyways because it has to go through a paper filter to get any particulates out because you don't want sand in the salt. Mm-hmm which people I think don't realize there's multiple layers of the process to get it to the final end means. So now you've acquired a space out at Neetart's Bay. Yep. Which used to be, from what I understand, an oyster farm. Oyster farm, yeah. It's, uh, we have an old oyster farm on Neetart's Bay. You've been there. Yep. You've, uh, I uh, finagled my way into you and Jeremy <laughs> cooking a dinner out there without the stoves or ovens working. Without the stoves or ovens working, which we found out a half an hour before we started cooking because the insides were rusted out. Oh my God. Well, that's, I mean, that's also something that's very interesting is like, as you're processing this seawater, mm. you have tons of steam, right? Natural steam. And, but what that's doing is also naturally corrodes things that are around it. 
it's an incredibly corrosive environment. It's, I mean, you think about like just, you know, a house on the ocean and like the, the, you know, the corrosion that happens on the, you know, anything metal that's on the house or, you know, or even um, just the, the abuse the paint takes from, from ocean water, the spray naturally in the air, you have to repaint a home every year. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you take that and you intensify it by, you know, factors by multiple, multiple factors. And because you're dealing with not only condensed brine seawater, you know, which is even saltier, um, but also um, the heat. And it's just like things are demolished out there. Like it's, it's crazy how much money and equipment we've been through because of like just, you know, a wrench is left out. Like you leave a crescent wrench out and it's not usable in two days. It's crazy. And, you know, those $10, you know, crescent wrenches, whatever they are, add, add up, up quickly. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's, you know, anybody who has worked on a fishing boat or sailed mm -hmm. or been around the ocean understands the corrosiveness of the ocean. I mean, you look at vehicles that are parked near the beach, somebody who has a beach home, their car erodes. You grew up on the East Coast. Like, I you remember in... salt on the roads and everybody's cars are rusted out. Rusted and... out on the <laughs> bottoms. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely a big component of it. So, you know, so since you've now introduced having the facility, mm. you know, and being able to pump, you literally have a pump now that goes out into the bay yep. pretty far. How far out does that pump? It's about 100 yards out. And um, then it, it comes in, it filters as, as the water's coming in. Yep. Filters it um, as it's coming in. It's a two-inch PVC line, which is pretty underwhelming. Like when you get there, it's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> but it works. Uh, and that's really all we need. Um, and so we've got a pump and a pipe, and and then we have holding tanks of seawater on on you know on shore, and um, and then we filter it all the way down to one micron, which is really really small, um, and then um, then we boil it to remove the volume of the seawater. But most importantly, I don't know if you remember when you were out there to remove the calcium and magnesium, and um, the calcium and magnesium scales to the bottoms of our pots, and it's 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 crazy. It's just it comes out as hard rock. Um, and, um, and then we moved the brine to very shallow stainless steel evaporation pans um, where the salt crystals form on the surface, then kind of fall to the bottom like a leaf falling from a tree or a snowflake really, really slowly and kind of gracefully. And, um, and then we harvest the salt crystals from the bottom of the pan, and let them drain and then dry. It takes now two weeks from, about two weeks from seawater to dry flake us all. And um, we've got to, you know, that's also, I think the cool thing is like, we now employ, what is it? I think 13 people out there um, in an industry that's, that didn't exist in Oregon before. And so we've created 13 jobs literally out of seawater and thin air. <laughs> but also you're also creating 13 jobs in an area that didn't have those, thir there was not a, there's not a lot of opportunity for employment in that area. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the majority of our folks are um, ex-loggers, ex-fishermen, um, our, our coast ops manager um, actually used to be a cook at the schooner. Um, I think we went there when you were out yeah, there. Yeah, schooner's fun. It's so fun. Yeah, Rachel is Rachel Poxawan is our ops manager out there, and she's phenomenal. And um, but she, you know, kind of wanted to get out of cooking every single day, and and now she works for us, and it's great. So I think when you start to look at salt, now you're not only you're producing a flake salt, you're also producing the kosher salt which is a byproduct of making the flake salt. Yeah. So can you explain how that happens? Because I think there's there's definitely a difference of 
salt, right, between a traditional kosher as well as there being a flake. And I don't think people understand how the two are made at the same time. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Also, you know, what defines it as kosher? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, okay, yeah, so two things. Um, one, you know, so uh, there, there's, there, there are always a couple of periods of time during the year that we cannot make flake salt. And um, I only found out, uh, you know, come to find out years later um, why that was happening. And it's because crabs are molting, Dungeness crab are molting in the bay. And so Dungeness crab, when they're wiggling out of their shells, release collagen. And that collagen prohibits flake salt formation. And How in the hell did you figure that out? Uh, I was literally having a beer with a buddy, an oyster, oyster farmer buddy of mine at the schooner. And he was, and I was like, you know, it was, I don't know, rainy on a Tuesday, November night or whatever. And I was like, I can't figure it out. Nobody, you know, we've looked at every single piece of data and everything. And he's like, well, you know, the crabs are molting right now. And so we're like, yeah. And anyway, so um, we then went back and tested it and it was turned out that it was the collagen, which is crazy. And so, but that took years to figure out. And so, but during that time. But that's amazing that nature yes natural everyday occurrence that happens every season preventing you or preventing nature from doing its own normal thing which is collagen preventing the crystallization of salt yes it's crazy but who would have ever thought i mean but also that brings into such simple things as if the crabs are molting at that time in the water if somebody is allergic to shellfish can they swim without having an allergic reaction or is Anything else affected by that? Is the fish affected? So mm. that's actually a really interesting. Mm. Like I would have never put. Blew my mind. It it was it was uh, crazy. And 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 you know still to this day we learn. I mean we're constantly learning. It's a, we're eight years old as a company and we 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 learn stuff all the time. And Nature's way smarter than us. Way smarter. I mean we are. I mean we're out on the edge of the of the continent out there and and. It's incredibly humbling, and we're just a tiny little piece on this rock floating through space. It's it's uh, and we're here for such a short period of time. It's crazy, um, but oh yeah. So 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 anyway. So during this period of time, I wasn't able to make flake salt, and I didn't want to sell our our fine grain salt as flake salt because when you when you use our salt, it's super light and flaky, um, and I didn't. And even though we I could have just labeled it as flake salt and kind of said, all right, enough with that. We started to stock up tens of thousands of pounds of kosher salt. Um, or of, at that time, we called it mineral salt. And the mineral salt, um, we, we called it mineral salt because it, it was still light and flaky, but not quite as, um, not qu nearly as flaky as our pure flake salt. And um, so <laughs> you, you know, and we, put it in 10 pound bags and then stack the bags. And, um, it was enough to like, we filled up half a room. It was, it was immense tens of thousands of pounds of salt. I think at one point we had th like 35,000 pounds. Um, and it very much looked like a cocaine operation on the coast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then we're like, why don't we just sell a fine grain salt? The salt still tastes delicious. It's just not, flake salt and, and I didn't want to try and pass it off as such. And so, um, did a little research and, and come to find out, you know, kosher salt 
the only thing that makes a salt kosher is the designation of or getting that kosher salt designation. And so we literally pay a rabbinical organization X dollars a year to use their trademark symbol to call it kosher salt. They come out and make sure you follow protocols. Yep, Yep. but the the funny thing is we're not doing a single thing differently than what we would do otherwise. Which, Um, but that's, but that also shows you that there's nothing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's inherently, I mean, it's It's inherently kosher. Yeah, and the reason we chose to call it kosher salt is because like, you know, granted, if you look at cookbooks everywhere else in the world except for the U.S., nobody calls it kosher salt. Sea salt, it's gray salt, whatever it is. Americans have some, somehow gotten used to this term of like kosher salt. And um, there's no particular reason why. It's just become kind of a standard unit of measurement, almost like a Kleenex. Or a- well, that's, that's actually a pretty easy answer because for years there was only two styles of salt available in the U.S., Yes. which was iodized and kosher. Kosher being the unprocessed with no iodine. Right? So yep. when you look at that process, there was two options available. And at that time, kosher salt was clean. It's a mineral salt. So the chef community went with that. Yep. It has a better feel on your finger. Yep. You know how much you're using. And there's controls yes. put in, right? You can feel the control. Mm-hmm. Whereas the iodized salt was... Perfect little squares, you know, if you actually, that's why you can balance a salt shaker on it. And restaurants didn't want to use that because it was just one dimensional, right? It literally fit the periodic table, whereas the other ones had nuances, flavor, you know, and could be used in different ways. So that's how it became the norm here, whereas all throughout the rest of the world, sea salt, you know, uh, every different name you can imagine because that was their norm. Yes. That iodized salt is not the norm in those countries. Yeah. And before the industrial revolution here, we had good salt, but then the industrial revolution came along and started to iodize it and it became commodity. And, and you know, that was fine because it made it cheaper and more accessible to people, but it also lowered the quality of it. Um, and, and, you know, so it, it oftentimes, I think, takes looking back to, to figure out your way forward. And, um, and so, you know, you look back and like that's, that, that was the inflection point of quote unquote bad salt in America was the industrial revolution. And so it's, it's interesting. That, you yeah. start to think about those times. I mean, if you even look, I mean, you could go way back and you can go to Europe and in Florence, in Italy, they're known for their bread going stale every day, mm-hmm. right? Part of those reasons are is they chose not to use salt because of the salt tax. Mm -hmm. So they refused to use salt in their bread as a way of not just just like we're going to protest. We're not going to put salt in the bread. So you're not going to get our money. Yep. Right. Protest. Silent protest. But now the bread is still the same way without salt and, you know, forever. But I mean, it just goes to show you salt has played such a major role. You know, and the two simple things in life, salt and pepper, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we've taken them for granted. And I think it's pretty interesting to just use, you know, Florence, for example, you go there, there's no salt in the bread. It's now historically been that way for years and years and, you know, hundreds of years because of a salt tax. Yes. That's right. so cool. And then you come now to the States and then you have the industrial revolution. You have the, the, the mechanizing of salt. Mm-hmm. through the mines and the perfect little squares 
the iodization. And then now you have a, a resurgence of wanting to go back to the old school ways. And, I, you know, I know of restaurants that make their own salt. I mean, it's a lot yeah. of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, that's the thing. It's easy to make salt. It's not rocket science whatsoever, but it's difficult to make great salt consistently. Correct. And, uh, and that's, that's what we, you know, strive for and, but also struggle with every single day. And, and that, the other thing, uh, too, worth, worth, worth noting is that, you know, all of the oysters in North America are genetically the exact same oyster. So the oyster that you grew up with in, in Rhode Island is the genetically the exact same oyster as on the Oregon coast is the same as Tamales Bay is the same as Chesapeake Bay. And the only difference, you know, in the taste of that oyster, of course, of course, oysters, it's salty, it's briny, it's tastes like an oyster, but they taste totally different. And anybody who knows oysters and, and who appreciates oysters understands that. But, and genetically, like we're all those little, all those little bivalves are the exact same, but it's just the environment that they grew up in. What they eat, what yes. the, the salt quantity and levels, the temperature of the water dictates their, not only their size and their shape and how they grow, but the flavor profiles that they're based upon. Yeah. And it, so you went from flake to 30,000 pounds of, you know, kosher salt. Yeah. And, and. Decided to put you on the side of a box. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I think you, you, you really, <clears throat> and then you started like doubling in different flavorings. You know, you've doing, uh, which is, I think one of my favorites is the Pinot Noir salt mm -hmm. because you're utilizing what is part of Oregon's Pinot Noir. Um, and you're taking, and you're actually, why don't you explain how that happens? Cause I understand how it happens, but I think, you know, listeners don't understand the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Pinot Noir salt is, it's, it's, um, gotten more simple the way, um, it's happened over the, the past, I don't know, couple of years, but, um, but we spray, we put Pinot Noir in Oregon Pinot Noir in spray bottles, um, condense it first and then, and then spray it over our salt, turn it, turning it over by hand and then, um, dehydrate it in, in, uh, in between each time. And, um, until it achieves the right level of color, aroma and flavor that we want. But I think even one of my favorite salts that we do right now is our black garlic salt. And I learned about black garlic. Um, I don't know if you ever went to Bar Tartine in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I remember Nick and Courtney's black garlic potatoes. And I had never had black garlic before. And I was like, how do you make this? How do you, what is this? And so Nick and Courtney taught me how to make black garlic. I came back here to Portland. Um, got a little crock, got a little rice cooker, actually. The crock pot rice cooker method. <laughs> so folks, just to break this down in simplicity, and I'll tell you, Bill Corbett, the pastry chef, taught me how to make it. Buy a rice cooker, put a couple heads of garlic in it, get it going, and guess what? You're going to get black garlic at a quarter <laughs> of the price. That was the big to-do. I remember that. Thanks, Bill Corbett. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's so rich and caramelly and sweet, and it is just totally transformed and I'm just, uh, so, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's fun to take inspiration from people that I work with. And so I learned how to make black garlic from Nick and Courtney at Tartine at bar Tartine. And, and now we have a black garlic salt. And so we make black garlic 300 pounds at a time and then dry it out and then blend it up into what, our salt. What fucking rice cooker do you have that cooks <laughs> it's 300? A, it's a bigger rice cooker. Now. <laughs> it's like one of those 10 cup versions. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
What's interesting is, you know, I remember coming out and you and I talking about, okay, let's make some flavored salts. And I remember you and I pouring wine into the evaporator bins Mm -hmm. with the ocean water to bring the flavor in instead of the way you're doing it now. And you've changed the process because you've found it has better flavor nuances, which I think, you know, you and I did fish sauce salt. Oh my God. Yes, you did. We've done... That was terrible. It, it came out really funky, that one, because we, we poured how many gallons of fish sauce into the ocean? It was, uh, it was at least two to three gallons. It was crazy. It was the, the aroma in there. I remember your staff. I remember getting emails from your staff saying they hate me. I was like, but no, this is going to be awesome. And it salt worked for what we wanted it for. Yes. But the aroma, and if I'm correct, you had to throw away that pan. We threw away the pan. Uh, we it took it took a good two weeks to kind of get the odor out of the dehydrator. I, I remember everybody was pissed at me, like the the nasty grams I was getting, and I was like, Ben, I don't think your staff likes me anymore because <laughs> people were literally wearing, um, what do you call like a, I call it a SARS mask, you know, yeah. like those those respirator masks because they wouldn't even walk into the room because it was like it literally smelled like a rotten fish. Yeah. Factory, but it, but I think that that you know yeah it was a learning curve. It was we all absolutely. learned from that, and I think that was what was fun because at that point you and I were like, hey, let's pour white wine, let's pour red wine, let's try, and we were like banging ideas off. We even tried to pour honey in one. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's I mean you know I think one special thing about what we do is is the fact that we we aren't afraid to innovate. Um, it's in our DNA. It's in my DNA to kind of look at things differently and, and challenge the norm. And, um, and, and so everybody in the company, um, constantly comes forward with ideas, um, about, you know, ways that we could do things better or differently or, um, or not at all, frankly. And like, we just launched our season, the Jacobson seasonings. And, um, one of the seasonings that's in that line is our ramen seasoning. And that came from our sales manager, Courtney Parento. And Courtney was like, what if we did like, you know, those ramen packets that you get in like the shitty ramen? Like, yeah, they're delicious. What if we did like a ramen seasoning so you can put it on everything? And it was her idea. And now it's it's such a delicious product. And it also has MSG in it, like real ramen seasoning should. Um, There's nothing wrong with MSG. No, nothing. Not if, it's, so. not if it's used in a in a proper method. And there's nothing wrong with salt either. No, I think the percent, I mean, look, if you have a, a, a health issue where your doctor deems that you're not supposed to have salt, well then eat accordingly. Yes. I think seasoning is mandatory with food, but it's also less is more. And I think you can always add to something. You mm-hmm. can never take salt out. Yes. And I think that's been the learning curve for a lot of people is like, add a little, adjust, taste. I mean, my number one thing is acid and herbs before salt because when you add the acid and the herbs and then you hit it with salt, it's bright. Mm-hmm. If you just go salt first and then add the acid and herbs, you're defeating the purpose. That's a really good distinction. And so much of your food to me is such a reflection of that, of acid and herbs and then a sprinkle of salt. And it's, it's very layered like that. And I've never thought about it that way. Because you, if you think about it from the fact of, okay, let's add salt, it opens your palate, but right. acid and herbs do too. So if you add your acid and herbs to the point where you think you want them and then you hit it with a little bit of salt, it heightens everything and your palate opens and everything comes forward. So acid and herbs before salt. And, and it really, 
it's healthier. It's uh, more controlled mm. because as we all know, people can be very handed, heavy handed with salt and you want multiple bites to be consistent. So if it's very, if you season something to the point of where you think it's perfect mm-hmm. on the first bite by bite three or four, mm-hmm. you're overdone. It's mm-hmm. too much salt content. Acid and herbs before salt. I love that. People think it's, it's so simple, but it's so, it's, it's, so fundamental. I, I, I can't take credit for that. That's Mark Miller. Like that's Mark Miller beating that into me from day one of my working with him. Acid and herbs before salt. Actually, it used to be like, Chris, that needs more acid. It needs more herbs. God, Mark, I miss you. I, love him. I don't see him enough. He pushed. He pushed. But I think that's really relevant. So moving on from salts and flavored salts, you then started working with somebody locally working with honey. Mm-hmm. So what made that connection for you, salt to honey? Yeah, so um, so, so um, we did, so actually even, I'll, um, so before that, we had launched our line of um, salty black licorice. And for a salt company to do, th- to do that, I, and I, the licorice everybody freaks out over, by the way. It's delicious. Huh? I mean, that's like, a, it's, it's, can you even keep up anymore? Yeah, we can. Fortunately, it's but it's it's totally polarizing. But I I say I, I bring up the the licorice and the salty caramel to kind of as as kind of evidence of the way we think innovatively as a salt company and what salt company, what seasoning company in the world comes out with a line of candies that's ridiculous, and and we did that. That's very freaky deaky Dutch of you. <laughs> but we did that because I you know I used to live in Denmark and then Norway and and. I missed salty black licorice and I was like, well, I got a salt company. Um, why don't we make some salty black licorice? And we did. And it was well received, which is great. And, um, and then William Snow and one of our customers asked us to make a salty caramel. And so we were like, yeah, duh, let's do that. So that went well, that gave us the confidence to then go ahead and be like, because, because ultimately like, you know, we at, at Whole Foods or New Seasons or William Snow, we're in the salt section and that's great. But it gave us a, it gave us the confidence to be in another section on the shelf in that same retailer, and what that allowed us to do then was think differently about food um, and the way the way food should be. And so, be local came along. Um, Damien, the founder of Be Local, um, was a buddy of mine, and um, you know, Be Local, we had started at the same time. Jacobson had grown much, much bigger than Be Local during that time, and Be Local was effectively going to go out of business. And so we offered Damien space, and then we said, um, "Hey, do you want us to, um, you know, do you want to move in with us? It'll lessen your your rent load, and and you know, you can not pay anything, and and you can keep the ship afloat." Said sure, and then we said, "Hey, do you want us to start delivering your honey to the, to stores because?" Uh, we're going, you know, we're sending two trucks out a day. Um, he said, sure. And then we were like, Hey, do you want us to start selling your honey? He was like, sure. Cause we're already making that sales call or that email or whatever. And then, um, so ultimately it just, it just made sense to, to combine the companies and, and, um, and really where that, where I think that that I, I see, I see the company is, is, um, focusing on just really great pantry staples and seasonings and, salt and honey being kind of the core of you know of of those fundamentals you say acid and herbs and you know i don't know where you would 
where you would add sweetness or honey to that kind of acid herb salt uh, trifecta. But but honey is it's you know um, as Samin wrote in her book, sweet salt acid heat. It's like those are the, the largely the fundamentals of, of building flavor. For sure, and I think each honey has its own nuance. I mean, there's so much depth in each style, so much color variation. Again, that goes along with where the bees are feeding, what they're pollinating, and the flavor profiles change dramatically. Yep, yep. Yeah, so we, we've, you know, when we acquired Bee Local, they had 10 hives. Um, and um, Jacobson, um, we now have 125 hives. Um, em employ uh, two part-time beekeepers, um, which is just cool because like who employs beekeepers? I think that's incredible. And, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a large part of our business for sure, but it also gives chefs, um, our customers and, and folks that we work with access to great honey that they might not have had access to before. And, um, you know, just like salt as a, as a super effective, like elemental seasoning, honey can be the same. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's whole, I mean, what's really interesting is for years, honey was the sugar. Mm -hmm. There was no processed sugar. There was no brown sugar. There was no, you know, turbinado sugar or, or cane sugar. It was straight up, you know, you would have honey to season your food or maple syrup mm -hmm. at those times. Right. So when you start looking at those nuances, whether you compare a buckwheat honey, which is bitter notes to it, and it's super dark. Barnyardy. Yeah. Or you have a clover honey, which is going to be light and golden mm -hmm. and a little cleaner. And then you can start looking at what else, you know, where else are the hives living? Or, you know, do some have pine nuances to them? Do some have fruit nuances to them? Mm -hmm. So hives can be put anywhere, whether they're put into a field for growing pumpkins. Yep. Right. Or they can just be left in the woods or... You could put them on the roof of the building. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have you know beehives all around the rooftops of downtown Portland, and uh, that's you know that's the the honey that comes from each each and every hive is is very very nuanced. And a honey that you know is a block away from from a rooftop uh, on another building um, will be totally different. And uh, I mean that's just proof positive that you know what bees eat matters. And um, and it's, it's a reflection of the environment that they, that they live in, just like salt. So, I mean, if, you have, if you're on a rooftop that has a wood-burning oven in the building, you're going to have smoky notes to it. Probably will have some smokiness to it, yeah. I mean, winemakers in, the, you know, in, in Oregon, you know, we had the forest fires in the gorge a couple of years ago. And winemakers in Oregon, I know, um, are um, making wine um, with elements of, of, that, of those forest fires um, um, in that wine, which is crazy. But it's just like it's goes all the way through. Do you want to drink an ashtray? <laughs> I don't think that's sounds good. I mean, I like smoky food, but I don't, I don't like to drink liquid smoke. Yeah. I mean, I know the same thing happened through Napa. I mean, we lost tons and tons and tons mm. of grapes and wines. And so, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many moving parts now with what Jacobson started as and to what it is now. Yeah. I mean, you now have a downtown location where you're, you have an open studio where you do cooking classes. You have guest chefs come in. Um, people you stopped up. in to make a tomahawk steak for us one time when we were doing a photo shoot. <laughs> that was all by chance. <laughs> Completely by chance. Um, and, 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 you know, you do on-site events and you do dinners. 
So what's next? I mean, well, let's let, actually, let me roll back a little bit. So let's talk about how you got to salt. Let's be really honest. Like you were, <laughs> this wasn't your, it's not like you started in a kitchen and said, no. Hey, you know, I'm over, you know, working like crazy and I don't want to get burned anymore. I just, I want to do something different. You were in a different world. I was in totally different world and totally different line of work. I, um, I headed up before in Norway, I was working for a, a internet company. I was heading up global marketing. And, um, so I've got a <clears throat> good background on that and product management and, and, um, went from there to start up a, um, a dot com for lack of a better word, uh, in Portland, which slowly and painfully failed over the course of two and a half years and drained all of my savings. Um, but during that slow, painful death, uh, I was learning how to make salt and that learning how to make salt. I had no ambition or even kind of foresight into like, let's make a business out of this. I simply wanted to learn how to make great salt because I missed the great salt that I had living in different parts of the world. And, and the only thing that you can get, the only type of salt that you can get, um, at that time, this was, you know, 10 years ago was, was Malden. Or, or French Bleu de Sel. And Malden, you know, you could only get at William Sonoma and you could only get at like really, really high-end kitchen shops. And um, and then, you know, you, occasionally you would spot a Fleur de Sel. Now you find Malden, you know, for $4.99 at Walmart, literally across the country. And <clears throat> which is- a Well, I mean, you can, and a lot of that you can attest to food television with chefs on the show saying, I like to finish my dish with some nice flake salt. Yes. So that became the demand Yes. From so many of the public saying, well, where do I get that? I want what that chef's using on TV Absolutely. or I want what I see on, you know, Top Chef or whether it was Iron Chef America or whatever. They see them finishing with this salt and they want they want that. Yep. So, I mean, it created a, a national demand. Yeah. It was which a, it was which is amazing because considering it was the norm in Europe. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's, and it's nothing so like, new. Like, like, Cell Girard, in, if you were in France, you would buy bags. And that was their version of your straight up, like, kosher. And then you would get flake salt to finish. Yes. And, and, and we, we take a lot of those things. Like you said, you were in Europe, you were working there, and it was the norm. Mm -hmm. So, also, I think, you know, one of the things that you were doing prior to going to Europe, I mean, you were racing on the velodrome. I was racing in the velodrome, I was racing on the road, racing crits, um, and I mean, bike racing was my life. You know, when I was, from when I was 16 to what, 23, 24, something like that, bike racing was my life. I wanted to be a pro bike racer, and um, and uh, it was it was every, it was my world. Uh, much as it, as, it, as it was your world and, and um, you know, riding 400 miles a week and was kind of just what I did and, and going to training camp every year in Windsor, California, um, just north of Santa Rosa and, and, um, and then to Olympic Training Center and back in, in Colorado Springs. And it was just, it was, um, it was all I ever wanted and uh, such a huge part of my life. Sports are so important like for people. And it's just that competitive outlet and that that source of kind of endorphin creation that is, I think, important. So you raced on the velodrome for how many years? I raced in the velodrome for two for three years. 
Yeah. Broke my collarbone on it. Still, it's like collarbone, collarbone broken half, and it's healed like that. Still feel the bump. So you have an overlap. I have a. It's a good like three quarters of an inch overlap. Yeah. Yeah, that won't break again then. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's now stronger. Now it's stronger. Fused. It's doubled up. It's fused. <laughs> so I think you know that's a good point. Like you know, and that's how the connection really started was mm. somebody said, Hey, you know, this guy rides and you should meet. And it just kept on rolling from there. And I think, you know, and from that now you participate every year in chef cycle and you're a part of the sack lunch program. Yep. Right. Yeah. You, uh, you and Chris Domino, um, got me into, into chef cycle. And, uh, I remember, you know, of course I used to race bikes long time ago and, um, loved it but i was after starting a business and you know i was when i raced bikes i was 162 pounds and i'm 62 uh and now i weigh i just weighed myself the other day and i'm i weigh 205 but i'm down 20 pounds it's impossible to get under 200 now it's i can't i, I can't I get past i'm trying my damnedest i can't get under 202 You've got huge quads though it's it's amazing <laughs> though how much and just in i think this year this upcoming year Will be year six, if I'm correct, for Chef Cycle. Uh, it'll be my fourth. It'll be your fourth. Yes. It'll be the sixth year of its its you know uh, yep. anniversary of Chef Cycle. But I think what's happened with that is we're seeing everybody get back on their bike, having a better balance, training. Um, I think cycling's great for our industry because you're not standing. I personally don't find that running super great for chefs because we're already standing on our feet and it's the pounding is, can mm -hmm. be a little much and cycling is pretty low impact yeah. unless you hit the ground, which we try not to very often. Yeah. And, and you know, like I, for me, it was, it was a, it was a forcing function of, of finding balance because, um, Jacobs and Salt is eight years old now and the first six years of, of starting that company, starting my company, uh, it, uh, it was completely all consuming. Like I, there's nothing else. I, I couldn't even fathom going for a run or a bike ride because I was so busy and so sleep deprived and stressed and everything else. Um, but once I began to, to tell myself that it was okay, to, to slow down and to go for a bike ride, go for a walk, go for a hike, go for a run. My life became what it used to be, which was so much better than this completely all-consuming work mode with, with no kind of escape. And uh, it's, it's, that, it's that balance that I, um, that I love, for sure. I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, 300 chefs riding 300 miles this past year was pretty brutal for everybody i mean it was day one was gorgeous day two was gnarly day three was atrocious i couldn't even sit on the bike day three i i had a pretty bad injury from from campo Velo that i couldn't even get on the bike yeah but day two and three were not i mean they cut the course yeah it was it was a it was a hard couple of days on the bike for sure um, well especially for a lot of folks that came from the east coast oh. They were thinking, we're going to go to the sun. It's California. California. And it was colder in San Francisco and, and Santa Rosa than it was actually in, in New York and where all they were coming from. Um, the Canadians did great because it didn't even phase them. <laughs> I got to tell you, the feeling of being on the bike with 300 other chefs and kind of culinary 
related people is so powerful. And, and my favorite, the fa my favorite feeling of, of all in chef cycle is when you ride by schools and oh, you yeah. ride by schools that are directly impacted by the money that we, that chef cycle raises. Um, and it just is, oh man, you just see like these little kids out there cheering for you and the rain and the cold and the sunshine and whatever. That and was, that was pretty, oof. I think this past year wasn't, I think the year previous, the year after the fires and having the kids stand on the side of the road after their school had burnt down was mm. unbelievable. I mean, it, it literally, there's, there's no words to put to that moment where the program that w we helped fund by riding this ride was still helping to feed these kids, even though their school wasn't there. And the school was their only means of getting a meal. So that was pretty awe-inspiring, being able to, and like having people stop and like hang out with the kids. That was, for me, probably the biggest moment ever. And I think that was us climbing up uh, Mark Lane mm -hmm. and their school was gone on the, and they were all on, the, on Mark Lane, like right at the, right at the four way stop. Remember as we're climbing. And I think coming back this past year and everything was green yeah. and lush and there's new buildings being put in and it's, it goes to show you like we take things for granted. We do take things for granted. And you know what? Like I believe that nutrition is a fundamental human right. I believe that every person on the planet should have access to nutrition. And I believe that every person on the planet should have access to healthcare. Um, unfortunately, our political system isn't set up for that quite yet, but I think we are beginning to turn the corner and, and, and ultimately like we're on this earth for a very short period of time. And so we might as well do what we can to make sure every one of us is taken care of. Well, that, that short time on this planet shouldn't suck. You Correct. shouldn't worry about the next meal. You shouldn't worry about if you get sick and can't afford to pay. If you're your going to go to school and get shot, you know, like these things shouldn't even be questions. No, no, it's and you know, call me a call me a socialist. I don't care, but but I spent five years in Scandinavia and I had an emergency appendectomy when I was there, and and I was laying in the hospital bed. Uh, ended up spending about a week there, and. Um, laying in the hospital bed on the, like my third day and kind of was woozy and, you know, waking up and, and I asked the nurse, Hey, you know, are you going to give me papers to sign for, you know, the cost of this? And she said, no, your only job here is to get better. And like, that is, that should be the norm for every person on the planet. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think unless somebody has left the country, and had an experience like you just mentioned, they don't realize that, you know, that's an option in other places. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Scandinavia is really unique in that way. Like, you know, in that, and, and, and it's, there's a lot of people that do really beautiful things. You know, we've got to give back. We've got to make the right choices. We have to do the right things. We have to speak up and do the best we can. It's like walk the walk. Don't just talk about the walk. Yep. Absolutely. And it's hard. I mean, is it hard to get up in the morning and train for 300 miles? Is it hard to ask people to donate money? Yes. Nobody likes sticking their hand out and asking, but mm -hmm. we do it because we believe in the right cause. Yeah. It's a, we believe it's, it's, it's the right way forward. So what's next? Drink of water. Ooh. Uh, 
I want to keep doing what we're doing. And um, I think we're making a positive impact on the way people cook, eat, and live. Um, whether it be, you know, cook at home, eat out at restaurants like Jackrabbit or anywhere else. Um, and then, and, fr and then frankly live and, and wherever that leads Jacobson as a company is, is kind of remains to be seen. But, but I, I know that we have, uh, I mean, I could spend the rest of my life just continuing to do what we are doing right now with Jacobson and still never, you know, get every person on the planet eating great salt. Um, so I want to continue to have my balance, ride my bike, run. I'm going to the Grand Canyon to uh, run with um, Gabriel Rucker and Michael and Willie, um, three buds of mine. When is that? Um, at the end of the, at the end of September. Um, Gregory Gorday was going to go with us, but he had to. He's got a work thing. But um, you know, we just the, um, Gregory and a couple of other guys uh, and I ran 19 miles on Sunday, uh, 4,600 feet of climbing. And it was my longest ever run, um, and it kicked my ass. But I uh, mean, that's serious. I mean, you're not only are you talking about the running, which is pounding on your system. You're talking elevation gain, and then I honestly think the elevation gain isn't the big issue. It's the coming back down, which is way more difficult as a runner because you are more apt to hurt your ankle. One hundred percent. You're you're running down a hill. Um, the angle in which your body's moving can be detrimental to both your ankles and your knees. Yeah. And it's really picking your line, learning how to run. That's very serious. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, uh, yeah, it's funny. Like physically I was, yeah, of course I was tired uh, at the end of it, but, and it, well, I was more than tired, I was demolished. Uh, but, but at the end of, of, the, of the run on Sunday, what hurt the most um, were my, uh, it was like lower calf and then heels. My knees didn't even hurt, knock on wood. It's your arches and everything because you're going at an angle. Yeah, you're exactly. at a steep angle back down. And I think that's, it's funny. Everybody thinks it's the up that's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the up is hard. The down is harder mm -hmm. yeah. because you're actually using more muscles to slow you down than you are to force you up. And just control your movement. Control yeah. your movements. Yeah. It's, isn't that a, it's like perception versus reality. Mm -hmm. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, so so this run is I think September twenty seventh, and Willie, the guy that we're going with, has run this you know a dozen times. I How think. many miles is it? Fifteen miles the first day, twenty five the second, fifteen the third. And um, are you running in the base of the canyon, or we're going to start from the start from the top and run down? Cool. And then run back up. Uh, so each and every day, and he's got you know kind of routes planned out for us. I'm pretty heat sensitive. Uh, and so I'm gonna, I don't think it's gonna be a challenge to get the group to go to start early, but I wanna, you know, hopefully start before sunrise and-, and Do you have a, a camelback? I've got, not a camelback, but I've got like a friend of mine- gave They make me a, a vest that like works a, really a well. Vest, yeah. And you know, I'm able to keep like two liters of water on me on the vest. The camelback makes a really good um, running vest. Oh, really? And then nice. the other thing you do is you can take and do, you can freeze the water and your body temperature will melt the water as you're running. Oh, shit. That's a great idea. So your, your core temp's cold as you're going and it slowly melts as you run and you can drink it and if the water's you're there and then it still has pockets in the front for food. They, it's called a vest. Cool. They really make a good... But while you're there, if you can, mm -hmm. try to connect with some folks from the Wallapai tribe. Okay. Uh, really beautiful, amazing Native American tribe. 
um, indigenous people there, they, that is their land. And they're incredible. I was fortunate enough to meet them when we filmed um, uh, Top Chef Masters and we cooked mm. on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Oh my God. But they're amazing people and they have a lot of beautiful history to share. Mm. Um, and it, it'll be crazy. If a storm comes in, you'll notice it'll actually stay within the canyon. The rain will stay. Oh, wow, crazy. Because of just the nature of force of the canyon. It holds the rain in the canyon. It's cool. I'm, I'm excited for you guys. If you, um, if you have any contacts there, uh, email me if you could, cause I want to, I would love to connect. I'm going to ride my motorcycle from here to there. And so I'm going to have time on the back end of the run to make sure you explore. go out on the, on the, um, the, the there's a bridge. It, it just goes out. It's like a straight out clear glass and you can look down over the Canyon. Oof. That's really, really cool. That's a, that's on their land. Oh on their, their land there. And that's actually really cool to go check out. You guys can probably go see that. But it's, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a, it's a very humbling experience to stand there. Mm. I can't mm. imagine running it. Mm. How many, how many days of running again? Three. It's a lot. It's a lot. Plenty, of of plenty enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so where will you guys be staying? Will you be camping? No, we'll st- we're still going to stay in like some cheap motel. Um, and my dream uh, is to like come back, you know, around you know, one o'clock or something, hopefully every day and, and like get a plate full of food and like covered in cheese probably. And, uh, and just like eat and nap and like, and that's it. <laughs> oh my God. All right. So I do a, a flash round pretty straightforward. Um, but like, there's one more thing I want to talk about before I do the flash round is, um, can you tell everybody about Ben's friends and what's going on with that? And you know, how you connected with Gabe, and what's going on? Yeah, so um, Gabriel Rucker, um, chef owner at Canard Le Pigeon and uh, and Little Bird, and um, Gregory Gorday, um, chef at Departure, um, are both really good friends of mine. And and um, I think it was Gabriel that that asked me. And both of them are sober. And um, Gabriel asked me, "Hey, like you know, I'm starting this kind of getting this group together um, organization called Ben's Friends." has nothing to do with Ben, uh, my first name. Um, uh, but it has to, but that's just what the organization is called, but it, it, um, it's a, it's a group for, and it's not AA it's, um, it's a group for food and beverage industry professionals, um, to seek help and support, um, in sobriety. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult industry and I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not sober. Um, and I'm not, I don't, um, you know, I drink alcohol and, um, all of that, but, but I have friends who are sober. And, um, at first it was, I didn't really know how to, if it was okay for me to kind of have a beer in front of Gabriel or, or Gregory or whoever, um, I was hanging out with, but I soon learned and, and asked them like, Hey, are you okay with this? And, so ultimately it's, it's, it's a, it's a group of people that are there to support each other in a very, very difficult industry. We're constantly su- surrounded by alcohol and drugs. And, um, and so what Gabriel and, and Gregory are doing at Ben's friends, um, is just powerful. It's, it's supporting our community from the ground up. And I've had, and, and, and our, you know, Jacobson's involvement is, is simply that we give them space and, um, at our headquarters in Southeast Portland and, and we give them the space to meet and 
that's a tiny piece of what we can do to help support um, my friends and help support the community in which we're a, a very integral piece of. Um, and um, for anybody out there that's seeking help with sobriety, um, then Ben's Friends in Portland, and then there are other chapters around the country, Ben's Friends is um, most definitely an outlet for, for that. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a great group of folks. There's, and just to be clear on that, it's, it's no judgment. What happens in those walls stays in those walls. Um, it's a really great organization and I know it's just branched out into Austin Yes. Uh, with uh, chef Philip Spear, um, really doing great things. Yeah. So, um, now we're just going to do a quick round. Ready? Yes, chef. You set? Yes. Chocolate fruit. Nigiri sashimi. Nigiri. Beef or pork? Beef. Coffee or tea? Coffee for sure. Wow. Hot dog, hamburger? Uh, depends on what kind of hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> you talking like the shitty hot dogs or like an OP hot dog? <laughs> Come on, you know, encased meats, they're pretty magic. Uh, I mean, if I had my brothers, I'd, I'd do a, I'd do a, Hamburger. Hamburger. Oh, the one here. We made ham. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I like that one. Um, playing uh, to the playing to my audience here. Beef or pork? Beef. Beef? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Red or white? Red. I'm really enjoying different types of wine now, but uh there's a bar in Portland called Bar Norman. Um if you have have you been there? No, I don't drink. Okay, yeah, of course. <laughs> we do, we, every podcast I've listened to, you're like, oh, yeah, I love bubbles. I do I love too. bubbles. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I I had to stop because of the, the mix with my medication. Yep. So I take mental health medication. Yep. And upon recommendation from my doctor said, well, the basic translation is you take crazy pills not to be crazy. So if you take crazy pills and mix alcohol, you're super fucking crazy. So which one would you prefer to the, be mildly crazy or super fucking crazy? And which so, one would your wife prefer? Which one would my wife prefer? So I, I made a choice for my health to choose not to drink alcohol. Yeah. And I do miss the flavor profiles. I do miss, you know, I do like gin. I do like beer. I do like champagne or really, really like crisp whites. But I, ju- I just can't anymore because yeah. it, it really has a bad interaction with my medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, knowing and owning it, I think is half the issue. I get that for sure. You know, and I think it's been a good judgment call on my part. Good. Making good judgment calls is not always easy in our business. Nope. It's very hard. And I think that's why it's really important of why, you know, you're mentioning and talking about Ben's friends and hosting them. It's like you do drink alcohol. Yes. And none of them are going to judge you for drinking alcohol. They choose to not. Yes. And I think... It is a very difficult thing. Like you mentioned, do I drink alcohol in front of them? Is it okay to have a beer? And it's not like you're doing that at the, at the Ben's Friends meetings. But just in general and everyday life, it's very hard to be at a food and wine event and not drink alcohol. Yes. Because it's it's part of the social aspect of being, whether it's a food and wine festival or at a restaurant or at a dinner or holidays, right? So that's a very hard conversation to have. Yep. And I think that's a really relevant point that you make that, you know, you don't choose to not drink, Mm -hmm. but you want to give the support to people that choose not to. 
Absolutely. And I want to help if we can remove any sort of negative stigma around people that don't drink. And because there's nothing, there's nothing wrong or bad about that. It's just like, it's a life choice. It's a life choice. And, and, and people are, and you know, frankly speaking, the people that are choosing sobriety, um, are oftentimes a hell of a lot stronger than the people who are not choosing sobriety. And so we should be lifting those people up even, even more. I mean, we, I think everybody that chooses not to drink alcohol should have a lifetime sponsorship from a sparkling water company. I agree. I can't begin to tell you how much. I mean, Gabe, I know, drinks tons of sparkling water. I drink tons of... We sat there. I think By we drank case. four liters <laughs> together in front of each other one day when we did our podcast together. But no, I think that's it's really, it's really um, important. Mm. So, well, I'm going to let you get on with your day. I think you have some, some salt to shake. Literally. Yes, thank you, you. No, thank you for being here. And uh, guys, everybody, if you're interested, please take a look uh, online. You can order from Ben direct, um, but you can also find his products at William Sedoma. Great product, great honey. Um, check it out. Cheers. <laughs>